boards and CEOs increasingly expect their chief marketing officers to function as strategic partners, leveraging every available tool to uphold brand integrity, foster sustainability, harness the power of data analytics, and proactively anticipate market shifts and disruptions. Hello, I'm Jamie Washington, and my expertise lies in marketing and branding strategies that deliver significant profits. With a career spanning over two decades as a global CMO, I've had the privilege of collaborating with Fortune 500 giants like United Airlines, Dunkin' Donuts, Apple, RCA Records, Gillette, and many others. What you might not be aware of is that the brands you adore are actively seeking you out and strategically tailoring their marketing efforts to resonate with you. This visionary orchestration is driven by none other than the chief marketing officer. On this show, the CMO Connect with Jamie Washington, I delve deep into the realms of data, purpose, and the pivotal role played by the CMO. Let's go in. Paul Alexander is the Chief Marketing Officer for the Boston University Questrom School of Business. He is responsible for the design and execution of marketing and communication strategies and plans that build Questrom's global visibility, brand reputation, and enrollment goals in support of the business school's strategic goals. Prior to joining Questrom, Paul was the Chief Marketing and Communications Officer of Eastern Bank. He also was the one that launched the successful Join Us for Good advertising campaign. Now, before Eastern, Paul served as the Executive Vice President and Chief Communications Officer for Liberty Mutual Insurance. He also secured Liberty's first ever global sponsorship. Paul has been recognized by several people in the industry. He's been named Financial Marketer of the Year by the Financial Communication Society. He's been nominated as the Sports Sponsor of the Year in 2014 by the Sports Business Journal. Previous, Paul was also the Vice President and Global Advertising and Design for the Campbell Soup Company. Now, before that, <laughs> Paul spent 15 years at Procter & Gamble. When I say he is a wealth of knowledge and information when it comes to creative selection, production, media planning, and analysis, I enjoyed this interview so much because Paul was a wealth of information when it comes to marketing. Let's dive in. Hi, everyone. Welcome again to the CMO Connect with Jamie Washington. And I am so excited today to have the amazing Paul Alexander, who is the Chief Marketing Officer with Boston University School of Business. Paul, welcome to the show. How are you today? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you. It's good to see you. Good to be there. Oh my goodness, it's so wonderful to have you here and a fellow Bostonian. Ah, okay. Where's where's uh, where's home for you? So I'm I'm right now in Needham, Needham Mass. Got it, got it. Okay. Yeah, great. So um 
more information than you need, but used to live in Lexington, but now I live on uh, Martha's Vineyard. Oh, beautiful. Okay. Yeah. Now when I go, when I come back to Martha's Vineyard, I'm coming to visit. Come Just, visit. I'm coming. I really am. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. That sounds great. So Paul, I love to start the show off with one question. Can you tell me what was an iconic brand for you growing up as a teenager and why? Um, for me, I was a big comic books fan. So I would say that Marvel and DC were like iconic brands for me okay. growing up as a kid. I collected, you know, Spider-Man, Incredible Hulk, Fantastic Four, Superman. I mean, I mean, all of those, um, all of those comics were iconic for me. And I can remember, uh, you know, going down to the corner store and, you know, buying whatever, four or five, six comic books and reading them every week or every two weeks. Oh, now we have to pivot because Marvel comics are huge. I mean, with my children, my boys, you know, <laughs> How, please, let's unpack this. Can you tell me what you think about the evolution of Marvel Comics with now with them, you know, having, you know, it's it's a Disney brand now, but it's revolutionized itself, even in today's world. And it was iconic for you when you were a teenager. How, what do you think about that? Uh, I, I mean, I think they've done a, I think they've done a remarkable job of like holding on to baby boomers like me, but evolving to reach right uh, X and millennials and, you know, now Gen Alpha because um, they've, they've kept the characters relevant and they've, they've employed diversity in all of its facets to keep the uh, the brand alive. And so uh, I, I just think they've done a, a wonderful job in, in um, kind of, um, I talk about this with PR quite a bit, you know, your job is to protect the brand and project the brand. And mm -hmm. I think Marvel's done a great job of that. They've protected the brand equities, but they've also projected the brand in a way that's kept it relevant. Okay. Uh, and when you say project the brand, does that involve like creating clear and cohesive brand image or is it more intended with um, conveying your messaging to your audience? I think it's the latter. I mean, I think if I think about Spider-Man, which I've always loved, mm -hmm. the way they've taken the, you know, the movie franchise and then expanded it into um, uh, social media and made Spider-Man younger and more diverse with a more complex, even more complex backstory. I mean, I was thinking about Marvel, Marvel versus DC is that Marvel Marvel, um, Marvel superheroes were always flawed. Like they had a, they had a flaw. They were imperfect. They were, um, they were um, immature or, they were uh, less confident or, you know, they just had issues. And I think that I think that that's what Marvel has been able to do. I think even better than DC, they've been able to sort of take that 
that angst in their characters and keep it alive and kind of keep it relevant and changing. So that's what I mean. Right. Okay. So it's almost you project the brand, but if you project the brand, you also have to make sure you protect the brand because with projection, you're going to put it out there to those that may like what you're saying and some that may not like what you're saying. But if you're projecting it, you're giving anyone the opportunity to validate your 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 statement, your mission, whatever you're putting out there. So you also have to protect the brand. So how do you protect the brand while you're projecting the brand? Um, I think I think you stay true to the backstory. Mm -hmm. You think about again, think about Spider Man and um, Aunt May and. Um, Peter being a, like a, you know, nerdy high school student. Right. Um, you know, they, they protected that piece, right? But they've evolved it to where my, my uh, nephew, who's 10, identifies with Miles Morales, right? And so, yes. right, for, to him, Miles Morales is Spider-Man. Yes. Right? 14-year-old. Exactly. Miles, Miles is Spider-Man. Miles is Spider-Man, right? And so <laughs> I think they I think they protected the backstory. Um and then also then kind of, you know, um marketing is about surprise and delight. I learned that at Procter and Gamble, right? You want to surprise and delight your your customers. And I think they found a way to surprise and delight while they've still stayed true to the origin story of their characters. And so you know, oldsters like me can remember the beginning of Spider-Man, the beginning of Luke Cage, the beginning of the Fantastic Four, or the Hulk, um, or Daredevil. Um, but we can see the evolution now and see how our, you know, our kids and our nieces and nephews are picking up on it. And it, you know, it's just, it's just a great, it's a great story in terms of brand management, I think. Um, mm -hmm. even different than Mick, like, I feel like Disney with Mickey Mouse, like it, it, it doesn't feel as fresh. Now, maybe it's just because I've never, I never glommed on to the Disney thing the way others did, but I, but I've always kept track of Marvel and, um, and have just been impressed with the way that they've, that they've uh, managed that brand. I agree. And I love even what you mentioned, Paul, about their the diversity and inclusion of the characters and the storytelling. They've right. stayed true to the storytelling, but they've diversified and made the characters more inclusive. And it's interconnected cinematic right. universe. <laughs> right, 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 exactly, exactly. Which, which has been just phenomenal. Um, and the success uh, has really set a new standard for for the franchise and even storytelling in Hollywood, where you can take a story that has been told for years. I mean, even with Barbie, you know, Barbie right. has same thing with Marvel. And yeah. now we're telling a, a new story and a different story. And it's the, it's the same characters, but now my daughters get to see themselves on the Jumbotron inside mm -hmm. of a Barbie movie as beautiful brown curly hair 
young ladies and now they get to see themselves projected as a Barbie. Um, And, you know, same thing with, with Marvel comics and, and it's, it goes with the brand and the storytelling and with, with you being a CMO, I really want to, you know, pivot with more talk about brand, but we see things are changing. Do you think we will see these continuing um, these continuous changes in the next five years, 10 years with branding and marketing and storytelling with, you know, the iconic brands that we have today? Uh, I hope so. Okay. I hope so. Um, but I'm, I'm cautiously optimistic, sometimes pessimistic about it. And here, here's, here's why. Um, I grew up at Procter and Gamble um, many years ago and learned about the power of great strategy leading to great communications and was able to see that Jamie on people would learn it on smaller brands and then apply it on the larger brands. Okay. What I mean by that is, you know, you would, you'd cut your teeth on a um, cheer or uh, an oxidol before you move to tide, right? And I think in today's world, the young marketers, they've rarely seen campaigns work because the big brands have absorbed all the benefits, right? They they have everything. Tide gets clothes clean, it keeps colors from fading, it, you know, has Oxy Plus, you know, and (laughs) it's tide free and um, uh, so, so the big brands have gobbled up all the benefits. And as a result, uh, young people, younger people have less confidence in the power of storytelling because they've not seen it work. Wow. They've seen things, I mean, things shift so quickly, right? Um, I'm looking at Allstate, right? And I think Regina King is back on as a voiceover in, in the campaign, but she was gone. Like they went like, like, 180 to mayhem all the time mm-hmm. and i was like you know yeah. when she was when she was being featured i was like yeah all states you know they're they're i i should be because i got i've got a good friend who's the black woman who's the cmo at progressive and okay. there's a bro there's a brother who's the cmo at nationwide so um and okay. i used to work at liberty mutual so I, i'm i know a little bit too much about insurance but um but my my point is that i think I'm cautious because if you haven't seen great campaigns work, um, if you haven't seen, and you know, uh, Geico or Energizer Bunny or um, even campaigns I've worked on, like Chunky Soup with uh, 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 the NFL players and their moms, or Charmin, uh, I started that campaign with the Bears years and years ago. If you haven't seen those campaigns work, you don't believe in it. And you just jump from execution to execution, from silliness to silliness. And that's why I'm more cautious about uh, great campaigns, great communications going forward. Because if you haven't experienced it, how do you know it? How do you, how do you advocate for it? So um, we talk a lot about purpose-driven marketing, um, but you have, I believe you have to have seen it work to really be a true advocate. 
Um, and I think I think there are just fewer opportunities, Jamie, than there used to be um, to uh, to have that experience. Paul, it's true. Um, <laughs> I mean, you know, you, first of all, for those who are listening who may not know of you, let me just share your resume is one of the greatest resumes in our marketing industry. Um, you know, many of many CMOs desire to, to land a fortune 5,000. <laughs> you have been able to, you know, to work with, as you mentioned, Procter and Gamble, CMO for Procter and Gamble, CMO for Liberty Mutual. Um, when I knew of you, um, when I first heard of you, you were CMO of Eastern Bank, which is, <laughs> you know, um, and I, you know, a, a bank here in Boston. And Eastern Bank was a very small, no-name bank, and what you were able to create with your campaigns to the point now that Eastern Bank in this, even just the New England region, it's a, it, you don't have to explain what Eastern Bank is. Mm -hmm. We know in the industry that Eastern Bank gives 10% of, um, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because I love, and I, I know that you're with Boston University, but I just, it would be remiss if I did not talk about the great work you did at Eastern Bank because that, you know, with the 10% that you all give 10% of your gross profits to nonprofits when there was a time that nonprofits could not get a loan, that they were having issues with getting any seed, any capital, and Eastern Bank was there. You know, you, this, the work, and I know you mentioned Procter & Gamble and, you know, and you mentioned Liberty Mutual and Eastern Bank. How have you done all of this, Paul? <laughs> it's amazing. No, no, you're 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 just way you're too kind. I, I've I've had a really, um, I've had a great career, and um, I've loved marketing and advertising from the very beginning. And when I when I, um, it was really I've just been able to find great brands and really uh, work on uh, specific differentiated strategies that lead to great creative. I, I do, I really believe, Jamie, that that's the key. I think that uh, what I learned at P&G years and years ago is um, the reason there's so much terrible advertising is because there are very poor strategies. And if you write a great strategy benefit reason to believe brand character, uh, then that turns into great execution, advertising ideas, uh, selling lines, dramatization, if you have great agency partners. So I, I, I count my P&G my P&G start as really the foundation for all the work that I've done since. And the things that I learned at P&G, I've, I've reapplied every place I've been, even here at uh, Questrom School of Business. Um, because it's about writing a great strategy, making it differentiated, thinking about points of parity and points of difference, and then how do you work with great agency partners to bring that strategy to life in a way that is uh, crisp and clean and memorable. So 
Uh, I'll give you an example. Um, at Boston University, Question School of Business, there are only two things I want people to take away if they're on an elevator. Uh, one is we develop um, business leaders who create value for the world. That's our mantra. We develop business leaders who create value for the world. And our tagline is Questioner means business. Questioner means business with the BU in red. So homage to big BU, but Questioner means business. So those are the two things that I want people to take away. Same thing at Eastern Bank. Um, the purpose statement was we do good things to help people prosper. Um, do good things in the community for our customers, for our colleagues, help people prosper financially, peace of mind, well-being. And that was brought to life with Join Us for Good. And so um, what, what, I, what I've tried to do consistently is to write great strategies that are differentiated with points of parity and points of difference, and then work with agency partners to bring them to life. And that formula has worked for me, um, whether it was Liberty or Eastern or Campbell Soup um, or P&G. Um, it's just remarkable to me how the P&G training has just translated into uh, almost everything I've done. Wow. How long were you at P&G, may I ask, Paul? Uh, I was there 13 years. 13 years. 13 years and my and my my develop my path there was a little bit different than others um i came to png in 1987 one of the many people who who believe you started marketing if you want to be the ceo of png that's the route okay but but about five years into my career um i realized that that path wasn't right for me that i wasn't um, I wasn't the type of husband, father, Christian that I wanted to be. And uh, because of the demands of the job. And I asked for a different assignment, Jamie. And uh, P&G put me in this group at P&G that called, was called Copy Services. It's like an internal Bain or BCG on advertising. Um, they teach all of the P&G people, how to think about strategy, how to work with agencies, how to get the best creative, how to write the best media plans. And I spent the next eight to 10 years of my career, so really closer to 15 at P&G, uh, I spent the next 10 years of my career in that group and being this internal consultant. And so I took that with me every place I went after that. I went to Campbell's, um, bigger job, more responsibility. Then I came back to Boston to Liberty Mutual um, and then uh, left Liberty to go to uh, Eastern Bank and was always interested in higher education, which is how I landed here. Um, but, uh, um, but yeah, I took a little bit of a different path as a CMO um, and, and, uh, and I'm glad I did because um, I really do feel like I've, um, Career-wise, I've been blessed, but I've also tried to be a better husband, father, Christian, um, and I think my choices have allowed me to do that. I love that, Paul. Um, 
how do you keep, because you, you said you wanted to be a better husband, father, and Christian. How do you keep purpose as top of mind when you are faced with a demanding job as chief marketing officer? Um, I think, let me tell you a, a place where I failed and what that taught me. Okay. Um, when I was at P&G and I was a brand manager, I had an African-American gentleman who was on my team who wasn't performing well. And I was really challenged to quote unquote manage him out of and let him know that he really wasn't performing at the level he needed to be in the organization. Mm-hmm. And so, he, you know, he ended up leaving Procter & Gamble. Now this is, this is decades ago, right? Um, mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I was struggling with this, right? I was struggling with this, you know, oh, he's going to be devastated. It's going to be terrible. And I'm going to ruin his life. He's the president of Belvedere Vodka now and and worked and worked, you know, worked for the Ford foundation. He did just fine. (laughs) He landed well, he landed well. So, so it was, it was a lesson for me in like not taking myself too seriously and not thinking that oh, that you are the Obi-Wan mm-hmm. um, for all. Um, <laughs> you have to do your job. You have to bring, you have to treat people with dignity and respect. You have to do your best for your team. But you also have to recognize that, you know, managing with purpose doesn't mean everyone's going to succeed. Managing with purpose doesn't doesn't also mean that people don't, land on their feet and do incredibly well. So I tell people now in my, in my purpose-driven way, um, you should be reevaluating your job every six months. Okay. You should love the people you work with. You should be growing and developing. You should be stretched in your assignment. And my job is to make all that happen in my on my team but if it isn't happening you should be looking and if you find something better i'm going to be your biggest supporter because that's really i mean it's really about jamie being the best jamie she can be and my job is to try to make that happen within my team but if i can't the worst the worst uh punishment or the worst crime would be to hold on to people or to, you know, play mind games with folks just because you want them to be part of, you know, your crew. Um, so that that's for me, you know, as I kind of am in my, you know, third phase of my career, uh, that's what leading with purpose is like means to me. It means like building a team, developing folks, seeing them reach their potential, mentoring others. Um, and, uh, kind of getting out of the way and not taking yourself too seriously. Hmm. Yes, you are like the Obi-Wan. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to be your Padawans. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Paul, as you mentioned, being in your third phase, you've transitioned out of Fortune 5 
And um, I'm just going to say Fortune 5. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, you're dealing with Procter & Gamble, Liberty Mutual, um, you know, brands as those. And now you're teaching. And, you know, you're at, you're the C, but you're the CMO of. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm actually not. Yeah, I'm actually, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I'm not teaching. So you're not, not teaching. teaching. Not teaching. So not you, okay. So you are the CMO of the business school, Boston University, Questrom. School of Business. School of Business. Yes. So BU's got 17 schools or 18 schools. Talk to uh, us about it. Just unpack yeah. it all. I'm ready. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it, uh, hopefully this will make you laugh. So uh, because I worked at Campbell Soup for all those years. Uh, so 17 schools. Um, Questrom is like the chunky soup of BU. It's like okay. the, it's, the, it's the number. It's not, you know, it's not classic chicken noodle soup, but it's the big number two brand. Okay. Second biggest brand, second biggest school here at the university. Okay. Okay. I like it. <laughs> You're yeah. the chunky soup. Yeah, we're the chunky soup of, of, of uh, Boston University. So um, I actually have a very interesting job, uh, I think, because the, uh, the benefactor of the school, Alan Questrom, who ran Macy's and other retail operations, he gave $50 million dollars to BU, he pledged it eight years ago, a 10 year pledge. So we're in the final couple of years. Okay. Pledge. With that gift and that $50 million gift, Jamie is one of the largest gifts anyone's given to a business school, like top 20, anyone ever given to a business school, $50 million. Phenomenal. Yeah, but he had a quid pro quo. All right. One of his quid, his, one of his quid pro quos was he wanted the school to rise in the U.S. News and World Report rankings, your you know U.S. News and World Report ranks a lot of things, right? Hospitals and mm -hmm. this school, this and that. Um, they do a particular ranking for undergraduate business schools. Okay. So, so to unpack it, BU's got a graduate business graduate business programs, also undergraduate business major. And he wanted he wants BU to rise, so that's why I was hired to try to influence the voters on this particular ranking to elevate BU, Question School of Business, from where they were 49th, 50th, he'd like Question to be in the top 25. And so I devoted 50% of my job to doing that and we've risen from 49th to 39th and to 38th in the first two years of our campaign, this Questrom, Questrom means business campaign. Um, right. So that's, that's, that's my current job is, is CMO um, of the business school, trying to elevate the brand in particular to raise, to, to, to try to get this, this ranking to rise. And then I'm doing the other stuff that you would think a CMO would do, trying, you know, enrollment marketing, um, um, enrollment marketing, to try to bring more students here, um, um, internal engagement, trying to make people, you know, faculty, staff, students feel good about being at the school. Um, but that's that's my role here. I hope to teach at some point, but I'm not doing it yet. Okay, okay. I did not know. Oh, can you also, you mentioned that BU has 17 schools. Um, out of those 17 schools, are, are they all under, 
Are they all post-grad or do you have some undergrad? Just for our listeners that may not know about Boston University, I mean, they've heard of it, but they may not know your structure of how exactly the, the business school sits within the BU umbrella. No, no, you, you, you got it right. I mean, so B, BU has, you know, thousands of undergraduates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you come to BU as a four-year undergraduate, you can choose to be a business major. Uh-huh. Okay. Right? Or you could choose to be a, uh, an engineering major or a psychology major. All right. So, so there's the undergraduate side of the house. And then there are graduate programs here. There's a graduate school of engineering. There's a graduate school of public health. There's the graduate school of theology where Dr. King uh, received his, um, his uh, PhD. So, um, so there's, there are graduate programs and there's the undergraduate school. Okay. And both of those comprise Boston University. And the Questrom School of Business sits in the undergrad or the postgrad? Both. That's both. the thing. Both, right? So, so we, so, so we think, yeah. So, if you think about a class of uh, a thousand students at Questrom, half of them would be undergraduates who've chosen to major in business. The right. other half would be graduate students, um, some full time, some part time, some online. Okay. Uh, who are getting a graduate degree, but maybe, you know, like yourself or like others, I have a full-time job. I want to get my MBA. I do that at Questrom. All right. Wonderful. So <laughs> being a storyteller uh, yourself, Paul, and with your extensive background in marketing, once you were hired as the CMO of the business school, what was maybe, if you could just walk us through what were the first three things you thought you needed to do in your first 90 days i mean like did you inherit a team what does your organizational structure look like no no it was uh you know i started i was one of those great uh resignation individuals so i left eastern bank and came to questrom during the pandemic okay and i came into a group that was seven people strong, but had dwindled to one person, not counting myself. So I inherited one person. Uh, so I, A, had to build a team. Okay. Um, but B, set a, uh, clearly set what my top three to five priorities should be. And in fact, here, it's been easier than many places because the priorities were pretty clear. This rankings story that I told you, yes, enrollment marketing, second, um, building engagement, third, and fourth, which I'm doing this year in my third year, totally revamping the website. Okay, super, not super. So, so the priority, you know, so it was it was building the team, setting priorities, and um, and then you know it building relationships, right? Just knowing how to get things done and who are the stakeholders. So, you know, that um, pretty straightforward stuff. It's just the, you know, the blocking and tackling to get it done um, in a new environment, um, in a different category for me. So trying to figure out how this place makes money, 
who are the who who are the key stakeholders yes uh, and um and then how do we meet their needs um so same thing you would do at any other place but it was just now for me in a different category um with a different set of constituents right when you mentioned stakeholders and you mentioned you know just being in a different place um a couple of years ago, Spencer Stewart published uh, a study about chief marketing officers, and they mentioned that chief marketing officers usually have a lifespan of about 40 months at one job. And they also mentioned that CMOs have characteristics of being in silos and you know, not sharing our strategies with the entire, uh, we're not cross collaborative. Why do you think that that was that first that they, they felt that 40 months was the longest for CMOs, like our lifespan at one job, number one, and then number two, why do you think it was such a negative connotation on CMOs being the, the worst? I think they said we were the worst out of all C-suites, we were the worst. Can you mention that? Um, I think so much of it has to do with the challenge of measuring our impact. Ah, uh, yes. Right? So that, you know, that, that, that John Watermaker quote still rings true decades later, like I, I I know I'm wasting 50% of my spend. I just don't know which which 50%. Um, so I, I think that it's just it hasn't become it hasn't become any easier to measure the impact of what we do, especially if you're a purpose driven brand um, or if you're in a long tail uh, category like insurance or banking. How do you really measure that? the Join Us for Good campaign is um, driving the Eastern Bank business. True. My, you know, the thing I would rely on, and if I did, if I did anything right at Eastern Bank, is I inserted two questions in the employee opinion survey. One was, does the Join Us for Good campaign make you feel proud to be an Eastern employee? And second, is it consistent with your experience at the bank? And that number went from 70%, Jamie, up to 80% over the five years of the first five years of the campaign. 80% of Eastern employees said the, that the campaign made them feel good to they made them feel good to be an Eastern employee. And I would hang my hat on that statistic because okay. right, because I couldn't necessarily prove that I was driving checking accounts or commercial loans or you know any of the things that Eastern uses to really make money. It was just that Bob Rivers, my boss there, he was he was just amazing in his determination to want to create a brand that was purpose-driven, that, um, that showed that we were willing to be courageous. That was our brand character word, Jamie, courageous. So wow. when we put billboards up that said, you know, good does not stay silent, Black Lives Matter, or when we were advocating for uh, LGBTQ plus rights or immigration reform or women on boards or equal pay. And we were doing it in the advertising. Um, that was just because the board was rock solid. Deborah Jackson, black woman, lead director, 
and Bob Rivers as the CEO. I tell people, if you don't have those two things, then it's hard to be a consistent purpose-driven brand. So that's why I think it's so hard for chief marketing officers. How do you measure the true impact of what you're doing? And if you want to bring purpose into your equation, do you have the support at the CEO and board? And I, and I add the board level, because without it at the board level, it's an empty promise. So that's why I think our tenure can be so short, is that we have ultra high expectations put on us, difficult to measure the impact. And then when there's a, when there's a fall in results, we're the last hired and first fired. Absolutely. Uh, it is so. Yeah, that you know when I'm when I'm down when I'm down on marketing as a profession, um, I'm down because of those reasons. But you know, it's just rare too that you have the ability to influence consumer behavior and change behavior and change thinking and establish a brand, establish something that's that will be there for five, ten. 20 years um, that employees can look to and say, yeah, you know, what does Eastern stand for? Oh yeah. They're the good bank. They're the good bank. That, I mean, that's, that makes me proud. Um, and, uh, and makes me feel good about the, about the role, but the, you know, it's no, no denying that it's just hard, whether you're at, whether you're at Apple or, you know, you're at Eastern bank. I mean, showing, why your work is making a difference in terms of the bottom line. I think that's really what drives the short tenure. Years ago, CMOs also didn't have a seat at the table, Paul. Um, and, you know, we weren't invited to the important meetings. Sometimes they would have the entire campaign figured out inside of the room and then they would come out of the meeting and tell you know the marketing <laughs> team if there was a marketing team or <laughs> you know yeah. this is your budget and this is what you, we want you know we want you to do low budget high expectation right um, why do you think that is and do you think it's changed today i think it's changed i think it's changed today for the um forward thinking top 100 brands. Okay. I think marketing has a seat at the table. Um, I think if once you go down below the top 100 brands, chances are the marketing person's wearing multiple hats. So they're, they're probably at the table, but they might be at the table as the, they also wear a finance hat or an HR hat or a supply chain. You know, they, they wear different hats, I think. So I think they might be at the table, but not as a singular marketing person right um, so that's but I, but I do I do think the top of the house uh, because I sit on the board of the ANA and so I'm, I'm exposed to the world's top marketers yes, and sure. and they do have a seat at the table no question about it they do they do um, doesn't make their lives necessarily any easier um, because again you have to have that CEO support and board support. I think the board support is kind of the, that's the hidden secret sauce that can make or break you. Um, um, because if the board supports your work, you're on solid ground. Um, 
super solid ground in my view. Um, but without that, boy, it's it's tough. It's tough. So I do I do think I do think that the top marketers have a seat at the table. Um, it's just it's the job is 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 hard. Mm. If you weren't a CMO, Paul, what would you be and why? Uh, if I weren't a CMO, I would own a uh, stereo. I'm an audiophile. I would own a stereo store. I love music and I love audio equipment. So <laughs> I would, I, uh, that's my, that's my hobby. So uh, I'd probably own a store and uh, be giving people advice about music, jazz, R&B. I used to be a DJ way back when. Um, so, uh, so that, that's my hidden, hidden passion. Oh my goodness. I can see you owning a, 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 stere a stereo store on the vineyard. I can see hey, that. Mm, that's that from your lips to God's ears. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's, um, there's a wonderful conference that's on the vineyard for, um, oh, it slips my mind. You probably know. And I think it's, is it black producers? Probably. I mean, there's, there's so you know, it's so many things happening. And now it's kind of starting at Juneteenth and going yeah. through the end of August. Right. So the, the period has ended. But uh, yeah, who knows? Who knows what uh, this living on the pit? I commute back to BU two or three days a week. I'm here in my office right now, but um, I spend most of my time down there now. Do you? I don't blame you. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It, yeah. Is so, it is so beautiful. And for the digital marketing managers that um, are listening to this podcast and they are interested in one day being a CMO, uh, Paul, what three qualities do you feel are essential for a CMO to have? Um, I think it's I think it's curiosity, curiosity, curiosity. Um, I think digital marketing managers are the future CMOs. I do too. I, no doubt about it. I just, I think you just need to be curious about people, curious about businesses and what drives them. Um, curious about new ideas and not getting stuck in a rut. But at, the longer I've managed, the longer I've been in marketing or in business, I've really come to the point that the difference maker is almost always curiosity. Curiosity. So curiosity doesn't kill the cat. Curiosity. It does not. <laughs> no, no, no. Exactly, exactly. Um, you'll stay fresh and you'll stay humble and um, you'll stay open, I think, if you're curious. Wonderful. Paul, if someone was curious to find you and to reach out to you, where's the best place for them to be able to reach out to you? Um, email is my is my DJ name, PA System, P-A-S-Y-S-T-E-M, PA System, at BU.edu. Um, and uh, next would be LinkedIn. So either of those. We'll make sure we put those in the notes. And thank you so much for spending time with me today. I really appreciate you, Paul. No worries. Same to you, and we'll stay in touch.